What is the one thing that we book lovers love even more than books? Books about books. Seriously though, is there anything better than losing yourself in a story that celebrates books and the people who read and write them? Enter Inkheart, a fantasy novel written by German author Cornelia Funke and originally published in 2003. Two years later, it was translated and published in English, and it's been racking up fans ever since. I never got around to reading Inkheart when I was a teen myself, but I am so excited to share my first experience with it with all of you on this episode. Here's the deal with Inkheart. It stars Maggie, the 12-year-old daughter of a bookbinder named Mo. When a mysterious man named Dustfinger comes to visit Mo one night, Maggie is not sure why her dad is acting so weird, or why they suddenly have to go see her great-aunt Eleanor, who is truly book-obsessed. Through a series of many twists, turns, and adventures, we learn that Mo has the power to read characters and events out of books, and that he's responsible for the existence of Dustfinger and a series of other fantastical characters in the real world. The once-fictional villain Capricorn wants to summon Mo to read another horrible villain off the page. And when Mo disappears, Capricorn wants to force the task on Maggie, who discovers that she has inherited Mo's power. Can Inkhart's author Fengolio rewrite the ending of his book? Can Dustfinger return to the home he misses? Will Maggie, Mo, and Aunt Eleanor make it out alive? You find out in the book, and we talk about it on this episode. Inkheart is a real ride, and I loved talking to my guest about all of its ins and outs. You'll hear us chat about world building, the nuances of translation, the presence of amazing adult characters in a book meant for kids, and characters opting in and out of the quote, real world. We also consider the multiple kinds of grief explored in the book and ask ourselves if we would ever want to meet the characters we write about. My guest today is Akshaya Raman, who fell in love with writing when she wrote her first story at the age of 10. Though she graduated from UC Davis with a degree in biology, she gave up pursuing a career in science to write books. She is a co-founder of and contributor to Writer's Block Party, a group blog about writing and publishing, and has served on the planning teams of several book festivals. Akshaya lives in the Bay Area with an actual scaredy cat, and in her free time, she enjoys baking, traveling, and watching too much reality TV. Did we just become best friends? The very exciting news is that Akshaya's debut novel is now available. It's called The Ivory Key, and you can find it wherever books are sold. Follow Akshaya on Instagram and Twitter at Akshraman. You're going to love getting to know her on this episode. I definitely did. If you want to get to know the podcast, and maybe even me a little better, I spend most of my social media time and energy on Instagram at SSRPod. You can find the show on Twitter at the same handle, and on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast community. If you like what you hear and you feel so inspired, I would love for you to share this episode to your social media platform of choice. Don't forget to tag me so I can see it and repost it. It is so helpful when fans of the show help me spread the word so that more people can join our crew of nostalgic bookworms. It is also helpful when fans leave ratings and reviews. I'm willing to bet that every podcaster you listen to makes this request on a regular basis, but I promise that we only do it because it makes a big difference for our shows. More ratings and reviews means more eyes and ears on SSR. Thank you for taking the time to spread the love. Want to spread a little extra love? Join other SSR superfans on Patreon. Patrons gain access to lots of exclusive goodies, including membership in the Shit We Read book club, newsletters, bonus episodes, reading recap videos, direct input into the books covered on the podcast, an invite to the SSR Discord channel, and more. Plus, you'll have the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping the pod keep going and growing. Become a patron for as little as $1 per month at www.patreon.com slash SSR podcast 
or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Thanks to every patron who is tuning into this episode now. Before we jump into our conversation about Inkheart, I have to take a minute to tell you about Libro.fm. Libro.fm is an audiobook marketplace and listening platform that offers an alternative to shopping with giant companies. It's true. Now, when you listen to the books on your TBR, you can actually support independent bookstores. The audiobooks you get will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRpodcast when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Akshaya. Welcome to SSR. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to talk about books that are not mine. (laughs) We were just talking about that um, before we started recording. Listeners, I actually don't know that I've ever shared this behind the scenes factoid with you, but it's something I've been sharing with a lot of my guests lately is that sometimes I get nervous because I'm giving my guests homework. Like I'm asking guests to read a whole book and then think about it and have all these insightful thoughts about it. And it makes me feel really guilty sometimes. But I'm learning from a recent experience that authors like Akshaya actually really like having the chance to talk about somebody else's book. So who knew, right? Yes, I'm very excited because especially because, you know, I pitched Inkheart to you. Yes. And I was very excited to revisit it because it's not a book that I have read since I was probably like 12 or 13. So it's been a very long time. And it was a very interesting experience revisiting it. And I was actually quite excited to get to do that. And then to kind of have a reason to do that too, to like, you know, read it and think about it. So yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's nice to have an excuse to do this. So we are talking about Inkhard by Cornelia Funke. Or is it Funk? I don't, I'm not sure. She's a German author. I have no idea how to pronounce her last name. Cornelia Funke Funk, if you're listening and I'm mispronouncing your name, I'm at least trying to do both variations. I really enjoyed your book. This is the first time I'm reading it, so I'm really sorry for mispronouncing your name. But Akshaya, you did pitch this book to me, although it had been on my list for a while, and I know that there are a lot of people out there who have been anxious for this episode. I want to hear about your experience with it. Why was this a book you pitched? You mentioned that you read it when you were younger. So tell me a little bit about what you remember about this book and why it was your pick to come back to for this podcast. Yeah, so... This is a book that meant a lot to me when I was like around that age of like 12 or 13 because I was a voracious reader. I used to watch a lot of like Cartoon Network shows and my parents were like, maybe let's try something else. And so they were trying to get me away from the TV. And so they brought me books. And so I got really, really into stories at a very young age because of that. And so reading was one of my favorite activities. It was like how my parents used to punish me. They would take my books away. I spent a lot of time like in the library, like in elementary school. And so reading this book was one of the first 
times I had read a book that was very reverential of reading and of other books. And that really spoke to me. And like the idea that you would be able to go into your favorite stories, like literally, or to, you know, have those characters like come out and meet you was such an interesting concept to me as a kid, even before I was, you know, seriously thinking about being a writer myself. So that was my childhood experience with the book. And when I was thinking about like, what were some formative books for me, that was a really big experience for me as a kid. Well, I'm anxious to hear how now that you're an author, you experienced it. Like, I'm sure we'll get into that, especially as we as we talk about when we meet the author of Inkheart in this book. But I was thinking about that a lot as I was reading, because obviously you're an author. And so I'm anxious to hear about how you sort of took that in this time around. Okay, so I did not read this book when I was a kid. It was published in 2003. I don't know how I missed it. I would have been 13. I've talked about this on the show before, but I do think like around that time, I was starting to become a little bit of like a snob and like, I was like, I only read adult books. And so I think I just missed it. And I have to say that as ready as I was to read this book and as much as it had been on my wish list for the podcast for a long time, I, for some reason, had it in my head that it was about a dragon. Like I was like, okay, Incarnate's like a dragon and... I guess I'm just going to like get ready to read this book about dragons. And I was a big fantasy reader when I was a kid. Like I just ate it all up, but I am less of a fantasy reader as an adult, which I do think is like a common journey for a lot of kids who grow up as voracious readers. And sometimes when I read high fantasy in particular for the podcast, like I really have to get myself in the right mindset just because I'm not used to it. Like when you're reading a high fantasy book, there's so much world building. I do find it to be like a mental exercise Mm -hmm. because you have to keep track of a lot of new things. And something about there being like a dragon just made me feel really stressed. I was like, okay, like I'm going to get to know this dragon and this world of dragons. I honestly, Akshaya, I don't know where I came up with this. (laughs) It's embarrassing, especially because then my copy of the book came in the mail and I was like, oh, hold on one second. This is a book about books. What is going on here? I am so excited. Oh my gosh, that is very funny. But I think it kind of makes sense. Like I think names like Inkheart, especially from that era, feel very like high fantasy. And yeah, like it's it's also interesting to me to hear you say that like you were one of those people who read a lot of fantasy as a kid, but then sort of grew out of it because I kind of had the opposite. Mm. I didn't read a lot of fantasy when I was really young. It was probably only when I was like, you know, in high school and college that I really went in that sort of direction, which is funny now to think about the fact that that's what I write. Like I read everything. Like I was not a picky reader at all, but most of what I liked when I was young was like Nancy Drew and, you know, things like that. I read a lot of like mystery and that kind of stuff. And so I also don't really know how I found Inkheart. Like, I don't remember somebody giving it to me. I have a copy of the book. I've had this copy since probably it came out, but I have no memory of like how I found it. I don't know if it was like a teacher or a librarian or like maybe I just saw it in a store. Yeah, I just remember always having this book and I remember just reading it, not really having any sort of expectation for what it was going to be either. Like when you're that age, I don't think you really go into books with a lot of preconceived notions um, in the way that we maybe do more often today. Yeah, I mean, I would have freaking loved this book. Like I cannot say enough about how much of a game changer Inkheart would have been for me as a kid. I was a Harry Potter kid and obviously that's a very complicated conversation now and something that I know many people who were 
born and raised in the 90s and, and aughts have struggled to sort of contend with over the last couple of years. So I'm not going to talk much about Harry Potter, but I will say that I think Inkheart would have like filled a similar space in my book loving heart, like the depth of this story. And again, the world building, which I really want to talk to you about as a fantasy author yourself. I just think it would have scratched a similar itch. And because I was so passionate about books and because I knew that I wanted to be a writer when I grew up, I just think I would have been like in awe of what the author has done with this book. Did you read either of the sequels, Akshaya? I read the second book. I think I read also the third one, probably. Um, I don't remember them nearly as much. I remember Inkar, and I don't own them, so I think I must have probably gotten them from the library, um, the sequels. So... Yeah, I I don't know actually if I ever finished the third one, but I've been thinking about it since I reread this. I was like, maybe I should go back and read the sequels. I remember the sequels were a little bit darker. Yeah. Well, the third one is called Ink Death, which is just like a really dark title. The second one is Ink Spell, and then Ink Death rounds out the trilogy. I did see that she announced a few years ago that there's another book coming, but I don't think it's come out yet. And if it has, it hasn't been translated like I was I was searching for it she said in 2020 that there's another book coming called the color of revenge because ink death is no longer the conclusion so I mean if she announced that in 2020 I guess it could still be a few more years before it comes out but I will be keeping an eye on that and I'm anxious to see what kind of press that book gets I was kind of interested in her background and I don't know did you get a chance to read her about the author at the back of this book I did not Okay, so this is really interesting. She started as an illustrator. Oh, okay. Yeah, she studied like children's book illustration. And then after years of illustrating children's books, she kind of got frustrated that the books weren't sort of being written or told in words the way that she visualized them in her illustrations. And so she started writing them herself. Oh, wow. That's a very cool journey. And there are like, you know, many illustrations in the book. Were they done by her? Do you know? I don't think so, but I, wait, I'm going to excuse any page turning listeners. I actually don't see the name of an illustrator. So I guess it could be her. In my research about the book, I didn't see her attributed with the illustrations, but I guess you would think if there was another person who drew them, that would be on the book. So maybe she did. The only other person who's acknowledged on the title page is the translator, Anthea Bell, who just has gotten rave reviews. Because of course, like I had to keep reminding myself, like this book was not written in English originally. And translation is a tricky business. Like I don't know that much about it from But the little that I do know is that it can be really successful or it can really kind of drain the life out of an author's original intent. And it seems to me from everything that I've read that Bell's translation just like completely retained the integrity and the magic of the author's original work. Yeah, definitely. And translations, like you said, can be such an interesting space because as a translator, you want to sort of honor the vision, but like not everything in every language translates very neatly yeah and like you said it's about like honoring that integrity and as a kid I don't even think I knew that it was translated so that was also interesting for me to think about as I went back to it and yeah to to I guess like kind of think about what that must what that must be like and I almost wish I like you know read or spoke German so I could read the original yeah totally and I don't know. I think like as an author, would you be nervous or I don't know, have your books been translated? Is that something that you have been or would be nervous about? 
I did sell translation rights to a couple of places. Nothing has like happened with them yet. Um, yeah. so I actually have no idea, but I think it's it's always like interesting because it's always an honor to be able to, you know, be in a position where your books get translated and find readers in other languages that you don't speak. And that's really cool because I've always been really fascinated by languages as well. And yeah, I guess it's like it's a lot of trust that you're putting in somebody else to honor your vision and the story that you're trying to tell and do it justice, not only in a conveying the story sense, but like in a literal language sense, because as authors, we typically put so much effort and thought into our prose and having it, you know, be translated to another language means that you're trusting somebody else to convey the way that you wrote your prose, but like in a different language with like different syntax or different metaphors that would be more familiar to that audience. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about. Okay, so let's get into the plot of Inkheart because there's a lot here. We're not going to get into all of it in this episode. It's a big book. A lot happens. I'm honestly still like kind of working through some of it in my head as a first time reader because there are just so many twists and turns. But let's start with our main girl, Maggie, who is the protagonist. What do you think about Maggie coming back to her as an adult? She's I think 12. I feel like 12 ish 12 is sort of like the standard age I feel like for protagonists for books written in this for this age group, I always joke about the fact that and I think this is because I was such a big reader. When I was little, my dream age was 12. Like I think a lot of girls and, and kids in general dreamed of being 13, because that made you a teenager. But I really wanted to be 12. And in my journey with this podcast, I've noticed that so many protagonists in books are 12. And that's my theory now that the reason that when I was like six, seven, eight, nine, I just dreamed of being 12. It was because all of my favorite book characters were 12. So I'm pretty sure Maggie is 12. What did you think about her, Akshaya, when you got reacquainted with her? I remember a little bit of what I liked about her when I was younger. The thing that I remember the most about her was how much she loved books. But like coming back, I could sort of see these other things that I didn't really hold on to as much like her like stubbornness and her tenacity, which I think are very much like qualities of stories, like those middle grade stories that are like fantasy-ish, where that's like a really big theme. But I also don't think I remembered the adults in the book that much, because like as a kid, I think I also just empathized with that kid. And I was quite surprised at how often she actually has like Eleanor or Mo, her father, around her or Dustfinger, like she actually does have a pretty supportive community, which I think is also kind of rare for like fantasy stories, especially because it's a lot of, oh, this young kid has to kind of go off on their own and experience the world, which tends to be like the more popular kind of like fantasy middle grade stories. So that I think was the biggest difference for me with her character reading it because even though she does a lot of brave things and stands up for herself she's rarely in a situation where she is unsupported in being brave that's a really good point i think you're right like we are so accustomed especially in fantasy but i think in kidlit in general to these like orphan tropes either a main character is actually an orphan or they have just decided to set out on their own for some reason and in this book not only does Maggie have the support of her father but she has the support of an, a great aunt and a great aunt is like 
like that's such a specific relationship that I feel like you don't read about very often. Like I loved that we have this great aunt character, Eleanor, who is a fantastic character and just like jumps off the page. And she even has this like kind of weird relationship with Dustfinger and Fangolio, the author of the book. Like I love that she has these relationships with adults. And I was a kid like that. Like I loved to be around adults when I was a kid. And I've now read as an adult, like a lot of these kinds of precocious book loving characters. But I do think often authors miss the mark on like the other side of that precociousness. And I think Maggie is a little bit more of a well-rounded character in that way, because not only is she like book smart in a very sort of stereotypical way, but we also see her smartness reflected in the way that she interacts with adults and just like the way she seems to see the world. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so Mo is her dad. They live in this house that's just like full of books. And I ate all of that up, of course. Her dad is a bookbinder. And one of the big questions that I had early on, and I don't think it, the answer to it really matters. And I don't really think I know what the answer is, or maybe there isn't a definitive answer. But I found as I was going through my notes today before we started recording that I had written in the margins a few times in those early chapters, the word setting and time period with a bunch of question marks after it. Because at first, so we're, we're introduced to Maggie and her dad, who is a bookbinder. And I'm sure there are bookbinders in 2022. I'm sure there are people who work with their hands in the rare book business, restoring beautiful old rare books, first editions and that kind of thing. But a bookbinder is not like a trade that you hear about that much in contemporary life, at least not in the circles in which I run. And I am friends with a lot of book people. So I was like, okay, this feels sort of old school. And then I think at one point fairly early on, there's a mention of a TV. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, so it's not as old school as I thought. Maybe it is more contemporary. And and it's interesting because I, as I read through the book, it's a little confusing, like what time period it is. I, I think it's, it is ultimately set in Italy. Like we go to Italy and because Cornelia Funke is German, I assume that this is set in Europe, mm -hmm. but it's sort of unspecific. But I thought that the question of time period is really interesting. And because you're a fantasy author, I wanted to get your take on this, like this question of timelessness. And is the idea here that this story is not bound in time? And is that something that you think about as a fantasy author? Like, is that kind of part of the whole world building thing? Yeah, I mean, I really like that word you used, timeless, because that's kind of how I felt as well, because I also didn't remember there being a specific time period or a setting or anything like that that was super clear. So when I was rereading it, I actually didn't really remember there being any technology. And so I was like, oh, there's phones here. Oh, like they have a car. Like, you know, they do yeah. kind of normal contemporary things, but in this way where it's almost like irrelevant, mm. um, where those technological things are kind of more of a hindrance than anything. And yeah, I guess it's a specific type of world building, right? Like you don't necessarily want to go into a lot of details about things that ultimately don't really serve a purpose. And especially I think it makes sense with these characters who kind of don't care about the real world in that way, who don't particularly want to live in the real world in that way. And it feels like, you know, modern in some ways, but then in some ways it's like, well, Eleanor doesn't have electricity. So it's like, okay, like that's an odd choice. Like even if you look at like a, if you're thinking, okay, maybe this is set in the 90s or the 2000s, like that still feels unrealistic. 
like by average standards, but like in the context of the book, I think, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like she loves books so much. That's all she wants to spend her money on. She doesn't care about anything else. And therefore we're going to accept these things about the world. Okay. My brain is going a million miles an hour and I'm trying to decide which direction I want to go. Okay. So what you just said, I feel like the ideal position for a character in this book is to be able to opt in or out of quote real life. Yeah. Eleanor is a character who has opted out of real life in a lot of ways because she likes books even more than Mo and Maggie, which is wild. Like it's hard to like books more than these two characters, but she's obsessed with books. Like she makes me look like I hate books, which is hard. So Eleanor has kind of chosen to like hide herself away from reality. She doesn't have a lot of relationships outside of her home. She's very reclusive. Akshaya, like you said, she doesn't have electricity. She doesn't want to spend her money on anything other than beautiful books. She has this big house that is sort of in bad shape because she's not taking care of it. She's opted out of real life in a lot of ways. At the beginning of the book, Maggie and Mo, while they love books, like they're still basically opting into reality, right? right? Like they interact with the world in a somewhat typical way. Mo has a job. They're moving around a lot for reasons that we kind of learn about later, but it seems like they have a pretty typical life. And then of course, we're introduced to this whole world of Inkheart in which we have book characters who have come to life because they've been read out of a book against their will. And some of them are happy to be there. Like there are characters that seem to be kind of thriving off the pages of the book and they don't want to be sent back into their fantasy world. But then you have characters like Dustfinger who desperately want to be returned to an unreality. And so as you were talking, Akshaya, I was just thinking about the fact that like, I feel like this book places on a pedestal, not necessarily being in or out of the real world, but having the option to be on whatever side of that you would prefer. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really great way to put it. And a lot of these characters live in these extremes. It's like an extreme version of saying, I'm not going to deal with the real world versus I am. And something that I was thinking about as you were talking was also that once they sort of go on this journey, it's not like Maggie is super desperate to return to the real world. She's desperate to return to her life with her father. She is desperate to return to just being safe and having a home and going back to her books. And it's not necessarily that she wants to go back to school or wants to go back to her friends or anything like that. Yeah, I think one of the really interesting things about Maggie that I liked from the beginning, in addition to her love of books and her comfort with adults, is her adaptability. And we learn fairly early on again that she and Mo have moved around quite a bit. She doesn't seem very tied to like the place where they lived. Later in the book, she actually says pretty explicitly like that she misses Eleanor's house more than she missed the house that she had been living in full time with Mo. So I think what you're saying is so true in that like she's not necessarily trying to get back to anything specific she's happy to adapt she just wants like a feeling like there's a feeling that she's attached to more than a fixed set of circumstances yes it's like the idea like this extreme version of talking about like feeling out of place like in your life or in your own story which i think again like feels very extreme for characters like Dustfinger who are like, this was my story that I was living in. And now this is no longer my story that I'm living in. And he desperately wants to go back to that because he feels so out of place. And some of the other characters, like you said, are more adaptable, who are willing to 
sort of try new things. But I think all of these characters, even the ones that don't come from Inkheart, have some amount of that feeling of like being out of place and not quite knowing where they fit into the world or where they fit into their own stories. And this is a very literal exploration of that, which I think is a kind of middle grade theme of kind of trying to figure out like, where do you fit into this world? Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way before, but I totally see that. And I can I can imagine that as a middle schooler or even a teenager, an older teenager, you might really see yourself in these characters if you're somebody who often feels like they're kind of out of step with what's happening around them. So Dustfinger shows up pretty early on in the book. We've met Maggie, we've met Mo, and this mysterious guy shows up and Maggie is eavesdropping on his conversation with Mo, her dad. And this did have like Harry Potter vibes to me early on because there are all these like names being dropped and they're kind of like magical, unusual names. And you're like, who are these people? I'm so confused already. And ultimately we learn that Dustfinger is an old friend or like a frenemy of Mo, Maggie's dad. But the next morning after he's had this secret sneaky conversation with Dustfinger, Mo is like being a little weird. He's a little shifty and he says that they're going to go to Eleanor's house and Maggie's like sort of excited because of all of the books, but she also is so curious about like what the heck is going on and like what was going on with this guy, Dustfinger? Why aren't you telling me what's going on? It's clear that Mo usually like interacts with her like an adult and it's very mm-hmm. frustrating for her that she is being left out of the loop on this, which I get. I totally understand that. So they go to Eleanor's house. Um, We get a lot of beautiful language about books mm-hmm. and how fantastic they are. And things just continue to get weirder. It's obvious that something strange is going on with Mo. He's like sneaking around. There's this book that he says he has very important business with. And Eleanor's house is, of course, like a safe space for books. And again, there are a lot of details to this story, and I'm not going to be able to explain them all perfectly, but I'm trying to think of the best like next big milestone moment to skip to here. So Mo disappears. He is taken by these other mysterious men that show up at Eleanor's house. They have found them. And we learn that they, in addition to taking Mo, have taken with Mo a book. And they thought that it was this book called ink heart but it is in fact not because Eleanor being Eleanor and being obsessed with books sort of swapped ink heart out for another book and she just wanted to read ink heart like she's just enjoying it and so they realize that Mo has been taken to some mysterious location apparently with a book that is very important for him to bring to this location it's like a hostage situation kind of thing and he doesn't even have the right book so that's concerning have I missed any major details yet Akshaya or do you feel like I'm doing okay no, I think that is good. I guess I guess the thing to me about like that sequence that really stood out was actually Dustfinger kind of his role that he plays in it where he he's definitely a very complicated figure because you know, he's been sent there for his own reasons and he's sort of distracting Meggie while Mo is like being kidnapped essentially and the role that he plays in that and the way that he feels about it after is extremely heartbreaking i feel like you know he's a character that i think i didn't fully appreciate when i was younger and coming back to it i'm like oh this is this is like heartbreaking in some ways because 
of like his own goal is to basically find out what happens to him. He wants to know, do I have a happy ending at the end of the book? And that part where he sort of sneaks back in to get this book and he finds the book and looks at it and can't bring himself to look at the ending, like that absolutely breaks my heart. Yeah, he's a really sympathetic character, actually. And at the same time, you don't know if he's like a good guy or a bad guy. Like he's very complicated. And he actually reminded me a little bit of um, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edwin, I think is the brother who is at first kind of like tricked by the White Witch to like work on her side. And, and then he ultimately like has to be won back by his siblings. But that's sort of what Dustfinger is dealing with. We find out that the bad guy in this story is Capricorn, who was another character that came out of the book Inkheart. And Dustfinger at first thinks that if he like cooperates with Capricorn by bringing Mo back to Capricorn's village and getting the book Inkheart, that he will get what he wants, which is a return to his life, to his reality, which is the book. And ultimately he realizes that like, that's not really how he's going to get what he wants. And so I think as an adult, that's, that's something that's really easy to relate to because as a grown up, like it's never black and white. It's never a clear path to like getting what you want. You always are sort of making your best educated guess at any given moment. Yeah, definitely. And the other interesting thing is that you actually get not a lot, but you get a few chapters here and there from like the adult perspectives too. It's not just Maggie's story. And I think that also helps because then you get to see how these adults are navigating the situation. And Eleanor also has a couple of point of view chapters that I also thought were very interesting because then it also shows you her own journey. And it's it's easy to look at this and say, oh, this is just a journey about Maggie and what she's going on. But it's actually all these other characters, including, I mean, most of the characters in the book are adults. So you kind of get to see the journeys that they go on too. And Eleanor's journey is especially interesting because she probably loses the most in terms of like, she loses the thing that is like the most important thing to her in the world. and she has to navigate that in some way and basically make her peace with the way that the world is like that's when like reality is sort of forced on her like going back to what we were saying earlier about how she has chosen to opt out of real life at some point real life sort of catches up to her yeah and it catches up to her so much that Capricorn's dudes go to her house and burn all of her books, which is messed up on so many levels. And I think Eleanor's journey is really interesting as well, because yes, she kind of has to opt into real life because she sees an opportunity to support Maggie and Mo, who seem to be like the only family that she has. And not only does she like, she, it's not like she's doing the bare minimum stepping in. Like we see her get really brave and kind of assert herself in situations where she's being told quite honestly by a bunch of men, like what she can and can't do. And there are a few scenes in particular where she's kind of like, well, no, I'm just going to do what I think is right. And that doesn't always work out well. Like there are a few times where her best laid plans actually don't work out so well. But mm -hmm. I love the fact that she was putting herself out there. And the fact that she was able to do that so soon after really like leaving her house for the first time after so many years, 
it was pretty cool to see. I liked it, especially because she's like an older woman. And like, it's so rare that we get to see older women be heroes in their own stories. Mm -hmm. And especially from this like middle grade book where it's like, that's not usually the type of story that you see, even in YA to some extent, right? You don't really see a lot of older characters doing a lot of stuff unless it's like helping the main characters along on their journey. And so it was really cool to get to see those chapters that were from her perspective um, and how she's approaching the situation and what she cares about. And again, that's like a very heartbreaking moment when she finds, when she goes back to her home and she realizes all her books are gone. I think that's probably another thing that I didn't really pick up on as a kid. I was like, oh, this is just like a fun story. But then you know, there's always that like point in time when you relate more to the adults in the story than the kid. And this is one of those things where I was like, oh my gosh, I feel so much for all of the very specific losses that all the adult characters have suffered. And they're not lost in like a traditional sense of like, I loved a thing and it was gone. It's almost like ideological loss that they're sort of grappling with and the various ways in which they have attempted to cope with those things that they have lost. And that was a very different experience coming back to it now. Yeah, you sort of understand the stakes a little bit more because as an adult, you realize like what that equivalent thing might be for you or what that equivalent ideology might be for you. And it's so heartbreaking to think about how that would feel. Yeah, and it's not literally just life or death, although those are stakes that are established in the book, but it's like you can lose things that aren't just about losing like a person. And you can also lose people in different ways. And I think with Mo and his wife, Maggie's mom, who is lost, and you don't really it's like it's a kind of loss that you can't explain to people, you know? It is different from saying oh, this person left me or this person died. It's like this person was inserted into a story that's not their own against their will and I was responsible for it and I don't know how to fix it. It's like a very like complicated experience of grief. Yeah, and I also think it is representative of a lot of people's like real life experiences with grief because like, Sure, you can say to somebody like, oh, yes, like I lost a loved one or my loved one passed away, but it's never that simple. There's always a story to your loss. Like I know when I want to talk about like the loss that's been the hardest in my life, like I don't just want to say this person died. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand how they died. It's so complicated. It was such a terrible thing. And so I, I think that we're sort of creating a fantasy equivalent of that in this book, which is really interesting. And as an adult, you're able to understand it. Whereas I think when you're a kid, you're like, oh my gosh, how crazy is it that Maggie's mom is just like lost in a book somewhere? And it is like, it, it is yeah. nuts that that's, she's just floating around in a book somewhere and Mo can't find her, but it it's bigger than that. And I do think it's, there are strains of that that are very real for many of us. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so the crux of this is that Mo can literally just like read people and things and objects and events out of a book. And this is why he's never read anything out loud to Maggie. She's never known why he won't read out loud to her. But we learn that this is why he had this experience reading a book called Inkheart aloud to his wife, Teresa. 
years ago when Maggie was very small. And when he did that, all of these characters, Capricorn, Dustfinger, many others, emerged from the book. Teresa disappeared. Havoc was wreaked. And he will never read anything out loud again. And so now these characters are kind of trying to sort themselves into like, who wants to go back? Who wants to take over the world? All of these things. Maggie does learn that she has the same power, which is pretty cool. And I love that she has a moment where she like acknowledges that she feels like that's selfish. There's this, there's a moment where she's like contending with like the fact that it's a secret wish. Like she wants the power because it seems so cool. And yet she also sees the damage that it can cause. Yeah. So I love that moment of nuance there. I thought it was very like complicated and real to me. I was like, yeah, I would want to be able to do that. But I also would be really scared about what would happen if I did that. I think, well, you mentioned this already, but Dustfinger's role in all of this is is heartbreaking because he wants to go home so badly. He feels very uncomfortable in this real world and he will do almost anything to get back. He has this friend, Risa, who we find out is actually Teresa, Maggie's mom, who has become somewhat of a companion for him, but he's pretty alone and he wants to go home even though he doesn't know how his story is going to end, as you mentioned, Akshaya. And then there's Capricorn who kind of just wants to like keep making really bad mischief and like causing problems. Uh, He's brought Mo back because he wants to read another really scary villain out of the book Inkheart. The only villain in the book that is worse than Capricorn is something called The Shadow, which is basically just like all the badness in the world that you can think of rolled up into one object, basically. And Capricorn wants to bring the shadow into the world. And that's why he is desperate to get Mo back and to get a copy of Inkheart because there aren't really any copies out there. There's a lot going on. There's people being taken, people being kidnapped, people traveling around. But what I thought was really cool was the moment, I think about halfway or two thirds of the way through the book, where we get to meet the author of Inkheart, Fengolio, because they decide that maybe Fengolio as the author will have other copies of the book. And I just loved this moment where Maggie goes to meet him and Dustfinger is there too. And I think Mo as well at the beginning before Mo was kidnapped again. Mo was like just kidnapped, I feel like, <laughs> so many times in this book. And there's this moment with Fangolio where he is like, wait, you've seen my characters? Like, what are they like? Like, he had never thought that he would get the chance to interact with these people that he wrote about, like, face to face. And as an aspiring author, I'm like, oh my gosh, wait, what if you could meet your characters? And I would love to hear Akshaya what your experience of that part of the book was like, because I thought that was really cool as a book lover and as a writer. Yeah, definitely. It's so interesting because looking at it from the perspective of the author is a little bit different from the flip side of it, I guess, is what kind of was interesting to me, which is the fact that nobody thinks of the author. You know, the author is sort of a last thought like people think of the story but they don't necessarily think of the person who created it as like an actual human being (laughs) that they can interact with and as a kid I did not ever think about authors I never looked them up I never knew what they were like I really didn't care and so it's been a very interesting shift to see the accessibility that people have to authors which is obviously a different conversation but Like in these days, it's very easy to be like, oh, I like this person. I'm going to follow them on Instagram. Um, I'm going to see what they tweet about. And 
like the idea that so many of these characters just bypass that altogether was very interesting because yeah that's how I was when I was younger and I guess like that was the part of that that really jumped out at me when I was rereading it but yeah I guess like it would be very I don't know would you would you want to meet your characters I mean my characters are kind of bad eggs so I don't know um I mean I'd be interested to see how they move through the world like I think it was cool when when Fengolio actually came to came face to face with Dustfinger and then I also thought it was really cool when like he was trying to prove to the Inkheart characters that he like created them yeah. like he was like yeah. sort of sharing these little insider tidbits about things that they liked and their mother's names and things like I just thought all of those little details on the author's part were so cool on the author Cornelia Funke's part not on the author Fangolio's part I mean I, I would like to see them I don't know that I want to like hang out with my characters but yeah, I kind of just would, I would like to know, I would like to know if I had done a good enough job as an author that these could be fully formed, interesting people. Yeah, that's, that's what's like, I guess the most interesting is that these characters that were in a book that only had several facets to their personalities actually written out, emerged as these full-fledged characters with histories and pasts and traumas and memories. So that I think is very, very cool. And yeah, I, I don't know if I would want to meet my characters either or like necessarily bring things out of my world. There are some cool things. There are, like, I love my characters, but I just have a hard time picturing characters in a world that is not their own. Like, I have a really hard time with like improv questions mm. that are like, what would be your character's favorite TV show and things like that. I have a really hard time answering questions like that because I'm like, they don't live in this world. They yeah. live in a different world where that's not something that they have to think about. And so when I try to come up with answers like that for my own characters, I feel like I'm writing fan fiction almost. And I'm like, I don't know, is this canonical? Like, I don't know, but I'm the author. Like I, whatever I say is like, oh, that's how it is. But I'm like, I don't actually think I even have a say in how they would interact in this world. So I think that's my, yeah, like I can't, I can't imagine having them be in this world. I frankly don't think they would like it very much. Wow, this is blowing my mind, this whole question of like, you know, when do you, when do you like lose control of your characters? And that's like a good thing because if you've done your job, then you should be able to lose control of them because they should feel like they are living, breathing beings that have preferences that you couldn't even imagine. Oh my gosh, I need to bring this back to my MFA classmates because this <laughs> feels really important. So Fengolio literally rewrites the ending of Inkheart uh, because we find out that Maggie in Moe's absence is going to be made to do this sort of ceremonial reading aloud for Capricorn so that the shadow can emerge from Inkheart. And obviously Maggie is really scared. She doesn't want to be the one to bring this awful villain into Earth or onto the planet that she has to live in. And so Fengolio spends all of this time like toiling over a new ending of the book, which I loved. Like I love this idea of a book as like a living, breathing, dynamic mm -hmm. thing and of a story as something that can evolve and change. It was just like a really neat literal representation of that. Yeah, like the idea that the ending is not fixed. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes Dustfinger's story feel a little bit more hopeful too, because it's like, 
because you don't get an answer to that question of like, you know, kind of, well, I mean, you kind of do, you find out he dies, but he still kind of wants to go back to that world regardless of what happens. And so this makes it feel a little bit more hopeful, like, oh, maybe his ending could change. Maybe it might not be the same ending anymore. And I also like the idea that like when characters get read out of a book, they leave the book. So people in that world sort of treat these characters like they've gone on a journey or like that's a mythical thing that we still have to be afraid of. They still do their day-to-day -day life, but in this world, those threats still exist, even if they're not literally interacting with those threats constantly. So I think there's definitely a lot of like interesting things about all of those elements and like the sort of fluidity of the story and that things are not exactly as they're written, which I think kind of philosophically is also parallel to a lot of, you know, the idea that you don't know what is in your future mm -hmm. and you don't know how your own story ends and you can flip to the ending. But even if you could, it doesn't necessarily mean that that is the ending you know, there's still potentially room for things to change. Yeah, I mean, this is all just so delicious for like creators, authors, philosophers, like there's just so much here for anybody who has ever read a book and loved it. Like, ugh, it's so fun. I also loved the reconnection, the reunion with Maggie's mom and that moment of discovery, like when I made the connection that Risa, Dust Fingers friend who has lost her ability to speak, like, that moment when we realized that there's a resemblance between Brisa and Maggie. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's her, it's her mom. And then that moment when Maggie and Risa realize it, I thought that was perfectly done. Like it came at the right time. I felt like I had the information I needed at the exact right moment to make the connection, but it didn't come too early. And then the characters figured it out at the appropriate time. Like it was just like pitch perfect. Yeah, and it's not really like a twisty book no. either. It's not like there's a ton of like really weird reveals and stuff. It's kind of almost like a quieter book. It's basically a pretty self-contained story. So it was very interesting that it was not like, oh, this is a secret we're going to withhold. Like every question that's sort of raised, including the answer to Dustfinger's question about what happens in his ending is answered. Right. And what happened to the mom is answered. And like even these like little things that they have sort of, established early on like Maggie asks what it what was my mom like and Mo says like oh she had a lot of stones in her pocket it's like such a little detail but it like comes back later and things like that where it's like it's not hard to put the pieces together but it's done in a slow and subtle way so that it doesn't feel like unearned like that real moment feels like there's still emotional weight to it because it's still like Maggie realizing who this person is and choosing to like, you know, have that relationship and the emotions that she feels about that, like recognizing somebody that she has not seen in like nine years. Yeah, 100%. And as a reader, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't wait for you to find out that it's your mom, which is really fun. Like it's fun to be in the know, but not to have to wait too long for the character to catch up with you. So overall, Akshaya, how did your experience coming back to Inkheart compare to your memories of this book from when you read it as a kid? Does it does it hold up? Was it a letdown? It definitely held up. And as we've talked about, there's a lot of like deeper themes that were definitely lost on me. I was just like, this is a fun book about characters who come out of books and who can read people out of books. That's so great. And books are great. That's all I remember. Right. <laughs> and the thesis, books are now, great. We love books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's 
really all I remember feeling about this book that I read like, you know, 15, 16 years ago, maybe more. And coming back to it now, I'm like, wow, there are actually a lot of like deeper themes here. There are a lot of interesting things. And like I said, the adult characters were far more relatable. And it was like a sadder book than I remember, not like in a bad way. It's not it's not a tragedy. It's not a tragic book. But like, there are these like moments of these like adult characters looking at the world through their specific lenses and you sort of see the ways in which the world has shaped them and some of those things are like that's kind of sad and there's there are things that are also really hopeful about that too I don't know if this is a word but there's like a jadedness yeah to some of the characters where you're like as an adult you you recognize it and you're like okay you've learned some things and that is sad like that we yeah. have to learn those things but I am so glad that you asked to read this book. I really enjoyed the ride. Um, Again, I'm just like so sad that I didn't have it when I was a kid. I would have just devoured it and been the number one fan. Other than Inkheart Akshaya, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? Let me see. What did I read recently? I read Tahir Mafi's The Swoven Kingdom recently. It was very, very good. Um, I read Only a Monster by Vanessa Len, which is... I guess by the time this is out, will be out, which was also really fun. I'm very excited for The Girl Who Fell Beneath the Sea by Axie O. Yeah, and like, interestingly, I feel like all of those stories kind of feel similar to Inkheart in that they're sort of reverential of like other stories and myths, even like in the world building, even if it's not something that's like a real world equivalent, they all refer to certain stories that are important in that world and so yeah those are those are the books that I have been reading recently cool well I will include links to those books in the show notes for this episode and Akshaya you have a new book out called The Ivory Key can you tell us a little bit about it yes so The Ivory Key is a YA fantasy it is set in a world that is inspired by ancient India Um, And in this world, magic is a physical resource um, that's running out. So in order to get more, these four estranged royal siblings go on a treasure hunt to try to find more. Um, It is like part family drama, part treasure hunt, lots of food, (laughs) architectural ruins, puzzles. Sounds great. Sounds like a little bit of everything. I love family drama in a book. So you have me completely hooked there and it sounds fantastic. So I'll make sure that listeners have an easy way to go grab a copy of The Ivory Key as well. Akshay, it has been so much fun talking to you. I really appreciate you reminding me that I wanted to read this book and sharing your experience with it today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>